John, and welcome to The Resonance Test. I'm your host, Pete Chapin, from Continuum. When you think of banks, do you still think about chatting with a teller or depositing your checks in an ATM? You might be surprised at how many startups are working on applying new technology and innovative approaches to the banking sector. The bank of the future might be a very different animal than what we have today. But how can banks safely test and try out new solutions without risking too much of our money? Well, Thomson Reuters Labs is helping startups do just that. They've got access to a ton of data and smart people to interpret it, and they work on both their own solutions as well as partnering with startups who want to get into the financial technology space, or fintech, as the portmanteau would have it. To learn more about how Thomson Reuters Labs accomplishes this, we recently spoke with Mona Vernon, their chief technology officer. Mona did her graduate research at MIT Sloan on the role of customer experience in digital business strategy. She's an executive board member of the FinTech Sandbox in Boston, and she's a member of the Boston Financial Services Leadership Council. Mona sat down with Lee Moreau, principal in service and experience design here at Continuum, to talk about FinTech, the value of big, medium, and small data, and the benefits and challenges associated with having an internal innovation group. Hi, Mona. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Lee. Um, it's great to have you here at Continuum. Can you just kind of give a brief introduction of, of you and what you're doing at uh, Thompson Reuters Labs? Sure. Uh, so my name is Mona Vernon. I'm the Chief Technology Officer of Thompson Reuters Labs. Um, that's a organization that I built starting in 2014. And what I do is I look after um, all of our R&D, our Center for Cognitive Computing that's based in Toronto, and I also build a network of global innovation labs, as well as um, have a really awesome engineering team that work on blockchain, and I'm in charge of the digital experience team. So um, you, you wrote a blog post uh, on, uh, about um, partnership as being a, a key way of engaging with startups and entrepreneurship. Um, talk about that. That's something that's really important to us, and we're right below Mass Challenge here mm -hmm. in Boston. Um, that's clearly a big part of what you do. Can you speak to that? Yeah, absolutely. So just as a background, um, Thomson Reuters is my first uh, big company, really. I worked in startups for about nine years, so I was on the other side selling to large companies as customers. And fundamentally, you know, one of the values that Thomson Reuters is about partnerships and the reason I think it's really important today is if you look at the pace of change uh, in markets like financial markets, uh, the pace of change with technology, trying to do everything yourself doesn't make sense. Um, there is just too much innovation outside the door of the company and so thinking about the right way to partner with innovators um, both in universities but in this case startups is really important to us. And that obviously brings up the issue of you know, how do you prioritize what you do outside mm -hmm. versus what you, you're doing in-house? And if you could speak to some of the challenges that you face in either. So I think you know part of what's really important is to have a thesis. And so I contribute to our technology strategy where we think about what are the key technologies that we need to invest in, how do we think about them in terms of developing them, building the skills, and at the same time learning and experimenting in that space. So there is um, one that there's got to be a thesis that's, um, you know, the intersection of technology and business strategy. And then the other is to think about very clearly up front uh, when you engage with the startup, 
what is the the hypothesis? Like, what what are we thinking we're doing here? Um, and then more importantly for me is how do you think about growing the pie for the two parties in 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 a sense where we help with what we can bring, which is the scale, the data, access to customers, and the startup brings. Um, an innovation, something really great that they found, and the the founder team usually has something that uh, you know gives them that edge. Um, and tip, we have sort of different models. The either the startup can become bring a capability that we don't have in house that we want to uh, test and then integrate. And we've done this, for instance, with a company locally here called Tamer. Um, where they have a really great uh, machine learning-based data management solution that is complementary to the other tools we use for our own data management. Other models include thinking about um, going to market together with the startup, giving them access to our customer base. Uh, So we've done that also um, using an example in Boston, since we're here, um, that would be Alson from the FinTech Sandbox. Um, So they're now... uh, part of our one of our product offerings. So I think the, the important thing is to be really clear about how we set those things up up front to um, I typically like to do these in like a three to six month well-defined test like what are we going to learn together what what's the desired outcome you know what does success look like and then at that point take a uh, you know a check and say okay so where are we going next so we have a pretty sophisticated way to look at those things and I think that structure and discipline is really important to set those partnerships so three or four years is a long time for in the life cycle of an innovation company or innovation group these days uh, any lessons learned that you want to share something yeah so um, you know I I think the main thing for me um, was that I had the luxury to not jump right in, but actually do this. Um, so first, um, you know, that's kind of what I studied at MIT. You know, my, my focus was technology innovation, thinking about how companies um, do innovation well. So I wrote my thesis uh, on that topic, and I looked at all this framework, and and frankly. Uh, companies haven't changed that much, so you can go as back as the 60s, and 80s, 90s, and, and say, well, what what worked? You know, what worked at 3M? What made 3M? What made Xerox Park? So I had sort of that academic background, but then the first thing I did is reach out to a lot of companies in our space, our customers, peers, technology vendors, people in different space. And what I loved about it is when you reached out to to chief innovation officers or people running R&D. Off the record, they would give you some really candid lessons on what they've learned. And interestingly enough, a set of themes came up of, you know, these are the things we did that worked for this purpose, this didn't really work for us. Um, and so I try to incorporate all of those in my pitch to, to set the, the innovation lab. And the thing that was really interesting is, uh, at that time, my boss had built an innovation lab in Palo Alto and then shut it down because he couldn't get value from it. So in order to convince him that I had a good approach, it was a pretty high bar. Um, and so we did this just like every other startups. We did a lean method. We started with one lab and four people and demonstrated uh, with a lot of focus and discipline value. And then from that, I went to the CEO and said, look, and got funding from him to repeat the model and the problem I actually ran into is people wanted a lot more faster and I had to slow it down so that we could keep iterating and learning about the right model. So 
it's very much about um, you know feedback loops and testing and also building on a lot of knowledge that's maybe not obvious because people talk about just their successes but just building on things that we know don't necessarily work and adapting them to the culture environment and market condition of Thomson Reuters constraints aren't necessarily a problem but has there been what's been the the greatest constraint to the growth of your team over time so um, I growth so you know the innovation labs uh, I hired all from the outside and I'd say that you know finding the right mix of people was quite tricky you know on, on one hand so, so in our model, we're part of Thomson Reuters. We're not a separate entity. In some companies, those those things are a separate entity. So one of the, the, the things that I had to find is people that were really innovative and that, you know, had this sort of gritty sense of urgency, had all the right technical skills. And by the way, there's a lot of noise for that out there. You know, everybody puts data scientists on their resume, but I looked at 100 resume to hire four people in Boston. It took me three months to find people that had the capacity to handle the complexity of the kind of work we do for our customers. And then, but that, you know, at the same time, they don't get discouraged by the corporate environment, you know? So, so finding that balance of someone who's greedy, who's got a sense of urgency, who will, is willing to challenge the status quo, but can also navigate a large matrix, it's actually really hard to do and find. Um, so that was my big focus for a long time, was to build that team. And then one of the model I used is, I took the founding team in Boston, and two of the guys in Boston actually went and started the lab in Singapore, so that they could bring what they had learned for you know, the first couple of years and backfill hiring their role and set that lab up. And we did a rotation model same, in the same model to set up Cape Town. So the idea was to you know basically start the, the first unit and then replicate that, uh, taking into account you know local differences and, and local market needs. And has that changed the way that you work or the way that you integrate with what's a fairly diverse uh, cor- corporation that you're working within. Uh, what do you mean? Well, you're, you know, in some sense, you're, an, you're as an in-house uh, innovation team that's sort of planting seeds around around the globe. Um, how does that change the way that you're interacting with the rest of the Thomson Reuters Yeah, so, so it's interesting. You know, so some of the myth is, you know, and, you know, at least for us, you know, we're not a group of people that's, you know, playing with toys and foosballs and, you know, <laughs> We're actually extremely business case focused. So it's all about the customer pain point, the customer problem. So we're really, really close to our product team, our go-to-market team. The go-to-market team is, is the team that's with the customer day in, day out. We go see customers with them, and we spend a majority of the time thinking about the customer problem. I'm also really close to our chief strategy officer because fundamentally I need that envelope um, the design envelope of what are the big bets, uh, where are the markets that are growing, so that we can focus our activities in that space. So all my projects are business case, use case focused, and I think that's really important. It's also really important in the early life cycle of an innovation group to demonstrate value. So you know, I kind of look at my portfolio as an investment portfolio across different business units, across different horizons, if across different risk levels, 
and initially you're not going to do the crazy out there thing because you're just going to hit cognitive dissonance with the core of the business. What you're going to do is really start demonstrating value um, in sort of near horizons and then over time take bigger, broad, bolder risk. And again, in that environment, you have to make sure you have the right people that are actually really jazzed up about delivering value that's immediate and not jumping to the next future thing. So it's finding the right people who will work on this and then managing that portfolio and looking at what it does. So I take in projects, uh, actually looking at my overall portfolio and figuring out like, how do I make sure that portfolio is pretty well balanced? And it's one thing to keep your your team engaged and jazzed, as you said, but how do you keep the executives informed and jazzed and excited and part of that's delivering value but there's got to be more to that yeah absolutely so um i actually set up an advisory board internally that includes uh the head of product management and innovation of every business unit i sit in our global cto's leadership team so i get all uh, my peer the cto's informed of what i do and I walk them through on a quarterly basis what we're working on. And I think that transparency is really important for building trust and demonstrating that what we're, and there's two reasons. One, transparency. The second is that one of the things we do is we engage the business upfront so that there isn't this huge gap for the handover of a project to them. So um, it's, it's a bit of a challenge because, you know, one of the things I'm trying to do is remain agile um, and as a big company, there are, you know, there are people around the globe in different functions. So you start having a team that's probably bigger than I'd like it to have, but it, it helps. At this point, I found that it's preferable to have that bigger project team so that the knowledge transfer is not done at the end of the project, but along the project. Um, so I spent a lot of time briefing my executives. Um, we build this really awesome demo site uh, out of my team in London that shows the projects with videos, data visualization, interactive, you know, working product prototypes, uh, prototypes, I guess, and then describing what the hypothesis was, was was the customer pain point, and we can share that with them. So there's a lot of internal evangelizing that's needed, mostly because it's a big company and there's such a scale to cover, and I feel like I'm never doing enough of that. Mm. Um, but um, typically the engagement happens because we're solving a problem they really care about and they really understand that. I think when you lose executives is when you're working so- on something that doesn't relate to the problems they're trying to solve with the customer, but the way I'm set up, I, I don't run into that problem. Most Many of the innovation organizations we, we work with uh, suffer from either not having enough data about what they're doing or the metrics uh, that I might my, my, my suspicion is that's not a problem for you since what that's what data? Your, uh, evidence so oh, in terms okay. of uh, proving to their leadership that this is really working sometimes it's hard to prove um, value and evidence and data that is that mm. a, it sounds like that wouldn't be a problem for you given what your what your core so, competency is you know it metrics are a really interesting thing right because there is um the, the issue is the metrics that really matter are lagging metrics. So when you really deliver something to market and hit revenue, that might take a while, right? I mean, especially in our market where it's B2B and you're delivering things to law firms or accounting firms or financial s- services, the, from the starting point of a six weeks 
proof of concept or experiment with a customer all the way to the productization is going to be a long way. And I don't necessarily, I can't necessarily track that revenue back. Um, so, you know, metrics are definitely something we focus on, but um, I think you have to be really careful when you set those things up to figure out, you know, how do you balance those with um, demonstrating value in a way that is measurable. Uh, well, I guess I just believe deeply in establishing trust. So, you know, it's kind of the trust principles are big at Thomson Reuters. I've been thinking a lot about what trust really means. And trust is about uh, having, I think, you know, it's the same thing in design. You have to have empathy for your counterpart. So understand, like, what is this business leader? What keeps him up at night? And how do I make sure that I understand where he's coming from and so that we communicate in a way that we understand each other enough? And so it's about so I think this notion of trust is really important and I, I care deeply about that. I care deeply about listening to the business people and making sure that their voice is heard. And I think that goes a long way to complement this notion of metrics. You have a so that for me that takes me to a part of your job we haven't talked about yet, which is customer experience. Mm. So empathy, trust, this notion of listening, talk about um, how you engage in those practices in the work that you do and how, how you kind of keep this team uh, working together given all the diverse things that it's doing. Okay, so I mean, I have a team that's a digital experience team. It's basically a team of U designers and UX uh, practitioners um, that are working on our customer experience journey. And what I love about that, his, that story is that, you know, our CIO... Um, took a trip as part of a leadership program in one of our lab and attended a design thinking workshop and he had this light bulb moment that said, oh, if I'm building IT, you know, I probably need to understand what it is going to do for the customer. And that led him, you know, a few months later I saw him and at dinner and he was asking me if I could work with my design team to do agile sprints and I'm thinking, what what happened to him and so what's been really cool is to see our IT organization adopt some of these principles and so I'm basically supporting them in, in trying to build IT solutions thinking about the customer experience first thinking about digital first and fundamentally I think that transformation of IT to be designed and digital centric starts with being really close to understanding how does the customer interact with what the back end does so that's one that one thing we do. Um, in terms of the fact that we're a big group and we're globally distributed, um, one of the thing that's been really great is uh, thinking about projects that pull people together from, you know, our experts in artificial intelligence to the team that's really strong in doing, um, you know, the sort of rapid prototyping and customer journeys together to the folks who can really deploy something really rapidly on the cloud and integrate blockchain solutions into some of our thinking and just building projects by design to have this team to come together and get to learn about each other. And then, you know, we have tools like Slack and we encourage people to try to meet face-to-face -face whenever they can and just self-organize 
in projects so that they build that sort of network. So we work really hard on building that and it's starting to work. It's a lot of effort. You know, people are in Singapore to connect them with folks in San Francisco. There's time zones and, and whatever, but finding project-specific engagement to get people um, together seems to work pretty well. So you had a good run over the last few years. Uh, statistically, though, for every one success story like you're having, there's four failures um, in where innovation centers uh, that are doing human-centered design and innovation, various capacities have fallen down. So if you could speak to that world that you're seeing from your perch um, as as some of these organizations close around you, talk about the phenomenon that's taking place. So I, you know, it might be too soon to see if I'm one of those, um, but um, I think the... So my hypothesis is that one of the things that makes this program successful is to be really deliberate about the goals you're trying to achieve up front and also make sure that you're on the same page with this executive leadership, the CEO, on, on what you're trying to achieve. I think it's impossible to do it all, and you can't do it all, right? I mean, uh, especially if you're a public company and you know you have quarterly reporting or and you're global and, and you have to kind of figure out what the goal is. So I think if you decide, for instance, an example might be, you know, I really want to shake up the culture and have people think outside the box or be more aware of what's changing in with technology, how technology is impacting our business. That's a great goal. And there are certain ways you'd go about doing that that might be very different than um, I really want to generate the next billion dollar business. If you think you're going to do both with 10 people, I mean, nobody can do that, right? Um, and I think it's it's just a tall order. So what I often see is people start these programs and they get, frankly, swamped by consultants and software vendors. And all of those things are really useful, but you need to figure out what the engagement is about, right? So he, I, I think that's been helpful for us. We were really deliberate about what we were going to do in each lab, um, what our purpose were, what we did and what we didn't do, and set expectation accordingly. The other is that if you're doing a big campaign engaging with employees, for instance, like let's be honest here, the, the odds that it's the next billion dollar business that comes out of a you know, campaign of asking employees for their ideas is, is I mean, that's a pretty rare occurrence. Like, the, the best thing you can really do is make sure you follow up on some of those ideas and keep the engagement of the employees going. And it's really useful for incremental or operational enhancements. But then you have to make sure that your executive leadership understands what they're getting. So a lot of it is um, having clarity on what the goal is. Is it to acquire new talent? Is it to create the next billion-dollar business? Is it to do a spin-out? Um, is it to shake the culture? And I think that helps set yourself up for success. It's, again, the same focus and discipline that you do in any new venture, right? It's just you need to be really clear about what your goal is. Well, we wish you the best, and we'll be watching from the sidelines as you move forward. So, uh, and, and, and I think it's a really exciting time because there's so much there's frankly disruption happening within the innovation groups that are supposed to be disrupting organizations. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of an exciting time. When I saw you speak before, one of the, the uh, you talked about this model of the circle of life and you've been, uh, I think, writing and speaking about this. Can you kind of communicate this to us? And, uh, <laughs> I don't know if it's a circle of life, but um, you know, I studied system dynamics at MIT, so I often think about 
um, problems, not just in two dimension or two by twos, although those are often very useful to communicate a concept, but I sort of think of them uh, with the, you know, the time dimension. And uh, we we were having an exchange with uh, Scott about all this idea management softwares and idea, you know, asking employees for their ideas. And, And one of the interesting learning I got talking to a lot of different companies is what those things are really good for and what they're not. And one of the thing I drew for him as a feedback loop was actually the unintended consequence, which is a system dynamics concept um, of running those campaigns and not thinking through them. And the idea really was that if you start a campaign and you engage all your employees for their ideas and not set properly um, the way you're doing this um, and you can't necessarily follow up on what's happening with these ideas, then instead of actually getting more engagement from employees over time, everybody's pretty smart. They'll they'll get disenchanted and actually you'll get less engagement. And so I think there's a way to fix that negative feedback loop. Um, and, and by the way, so you, you, you do that program, it runs for a couple years, you know, there's a new chief innovation officer in line and they'll just repeat it. And the circle of life idea is that unless you, because there's no corporate memory, right? Like corporate memory is basically people leave companies and, and don't remember what had happened. Um, and in my case, I did talk to our previous chief innovation officer and know exactly what she did. And the idea was, you know, maybe there's a lot to learn from what worked and what didn't work. And so I think there's a way to fix that circle of life, which is you start a big program, you get massive engagement, it starts over time to to go a little, you know, lower in level of engagement. And then if you actually talk to the employees, they're like, well, you know, I gave my idea, but nothing happened with it. So there's ways to fix that, right? Is up front, you say, you know what? I don't want your ideas. I want the problem you're seeing with customers. What is the pain point you're seeing? And then, you know, let's crowdsource a solution. There is thousands of really smart people, let's put a well-defined problem, like a grand challenge, which is why I like the mass challenge model, right? I mean, fundamentally, it's about a well-bounded problem statement and then engaging the wisdom of the crowd to solve it. I think that's a much better model because then everybody knows what they're getting involved in, that the best solution is applied to a problem that really matters and it all makes sense. I think intuitively you have to set these programs really carefully not to get that unintended consequence of over time getting a disengagement from the uh, the employees. Does that make sense? Yes, and I love this notion of sourcing the problems because so much of the time when we're doing our, our work with clients, we realize that they actually don't know what the problem is fundamentally. So our first job as a design consultant is to go in and clarify what the actual problem Absolutely. is. Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, this is where I think design consultancies can really help because 99% of the hard work is defining the problem statement. When I set up several years ago this internal challenge program and sometimes that, you know, everybody wanted to just get everybody's ideas in. I said, okay, well, let's spend a lot of time on the problem statement. And you must know this, that in the process of defining a problem statement, you start seeing the solution. Right, and, and that discipline of putting a lot of effort on the problem statement is really valuable. It sounds not fun, it doesn't sound innovative, but it's actually, that's the, the hard part of it, right? Yeah, it's the assumption that the brief that you started with is actually the brief that you're going to end with. And in fact, figuring that out is basically the project itself. That's right. 
I so agree. I guess there's some other things that need to be designed along the way and technology and so forth. Um, I want to give a confession, which is I'm going to ask you about a word that I know no, I don't have any understanding of. So okay. blockchain. Okay. So I spend a lot of time at MIT and I see posters about entrepreneurship and blockchain and Pokemon. Oh. Not in that order, but basically these are the like, three buzzwords that are going on. I don't understand it at all. Okay, so I can't you talk help? about Pokemon much. Um, <laughs> but um, so, look for us, um, the way we we think about. I often, so I can't really. I don't want to go into the full detail of what blockchain could do. Um, but I think the way I think about it is just like every other new technology that comes up. It's a lot more useful to think about its implication in a business. It, it's just a new technology, just like. You know, now this other big word, which I'm surprised you haven't seen a lot, is artificial intelligence, which is now so cool way of calling everything machine learning. Um, a lot of these technologies are, are emerging and the way they're impacting businesses um, are best tested by starting to figure out, like, well, what, what, what experiment can we do to figure that out? I'm, I'm not sure if I'm answering your question, but that's how we're appro approaching it, is to look at what's the problem statement and how is that problem statement shifting now that you have this new technology at your disposal? Well, what I like about your answer is that you're not so fixated on what the actual technology is, but no what its issue. value exactly. is. Um, and that's usually what's most important for your customers who are, the, you, you work in a B2B world, so your customers are themselves, uh, so I there imagine, technology officers of, of other corporations. Yeah, absolutely. And I, 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 So look, I mean, it's like, if you go back several years, since we're not all that super young, I mean, just remember what happened with mobile, right? Everybody was talking about mobile and apps, and I think now where we could probably think about, you know, where where were the really breakthrough solutions that mobile enabled, and what were the confluence of technologies that actually made mobile really exciting? So if you look at individual pieces of technology, you can't really explain uh, a solution like Uber. But if you look at the problem that it solved, bringing together the mobile app, this notion of uh, you know being able to leverage all this data, location data, user data, etc., et and then analyzing it, now you start seeing a breakthrough solution that is really different from what we had. Uh, is that so? I I think it's a lot more useful to think about what what new problems you can solve. I, I think I think it's the same way you should think about artificial intelligence, right? Like what what is going to happen? How much can you augment the work of a lawyer? How much more efficient can a lawyer be? Or if you think about in our space in accounting, how much more efficiency can you bring to an audit process? What would it look like? What where is it incremental? Where would it be, you know, pretty much disruptive? And then you can start looking at solutions that the technologies that that uh, make sense. So, you know, engineers. I'm an engineer. I can fall in love with technology. It's I can imagine how exciting blockchain and AI can be, and just so amazing to fall in love with it. But in itself, um, it, it doesn't create new markets. It doesn't create entirely new. Um, spaces, it's, it's really about figuring out what's the human problem you're solving. So one of the things that I'm intrigued by is you, we, we deal in a, continuum. we deal in a world of small data sets. So talking to a small group of people to try to understand 
um, the values of a broad population. You kind of come at it from another perspective, but but I think within your group, you're probably doing a mix of this. So what what's the relationship with big data and the way that you use it versus small data? Okay, so I mean, I think there is value in both, right? So. Um, like every big company, if you have massive amount of usage data, you can learn a lot, and that's fundamentally gonna power the way you present information. So, you know, uh, the, the way Google works is that you have all this usage data that gives you a better search algorithm, and so we do exactly the same kind of work, but we have it in a in the domain expertise that um, specifically brings um, the solution in the context of what, for instance, a lawyer would do. And so you do need to really understand uh, the way the human interacts with um, information. In our case, we sell information products. And so I think you you do need that empathic design approach. You do need that uh, engagement uh, and design thinking and as a way to validate what the big data is telling you. And it both they're really complementary, actually. Yeah, and we're often moving in the opposite direction. So please give us your, we're working with clients with our small data sets and trying to understand how with their big, usually with the marketing arm of a company, mm. how to basically validate our small data to get alignment within the organization. Because ultimately, all we're trying to figure out, and I think that's true for both of us, is how do we get leaders to stay aligned with what our business objectives are within the efforts that we're mm. pursuing. Um, so it might be, my, I don't know if this is going on a limb, but it might be that marketing uh, groups are not quite yet um, empowered with all the big data from IT. And when they will be, then your work will feel more uh, rewarding. That sounds great. <laughs> I'd love to see an acceleration in that, in that area. Um, changing topics a little bit. Um, you... you just on a personal level, you you emigrate you emigrated from uh, Iran when you were young to mm-hmm. France, and then you emigrated later for college to the United States. Um, I'd love to hear your experiences on that. This is a very challenging time, I think. In there, there are challenges everywhere in every country, right? Um, but particularly in the last few days, the sort of uh, deferred action for childhood arrivals, uh, the Dream Act was revoked, and uh, there was also talk six months ago when. Uh, we, uh, the new president, took office about uh, massive, you know, deportations and things like that. But immigration is so important in the technology sector. He talked about um, looking through a hundred resumes for four jobs. How does this impact you personally or in your professional world? Uh, so professionally, um, because we're global, uh, we we can hire uh, around the globe. And frankly, one of the best thing we've done. Um, is uh, we build our technology center in Toronto and we're getting tremendous talent. Um, it's a, a, a way we've sort of been, I mean, it wasn't planned, I guess, but it's, uh, it's a way for me to get talent um, in an environment where um, it's a lot more friendly to um, immigration. And... Um, so, so that's just one way. Um, my team is fairly small here in Boston, comparatively, so it hasn't really impacted us, although um, I have concerns about some of the H-1B visas I'm pulling um, and trying to figure out how to keep that talent. On a personal level, I have a funny anecdote. Um, so I have a French passport and an American passport, and right the weekend 
where the travel ban was announced, I was in a French territory in Martinique, and I went to the counter to come back to the U.S. with my French passport and my American passport, and they were not sure if they could let me back in the country, and that felt pretty scary. Um, and I wasn't really happy about that. Um, so I, you know, I felt really lucky. I came in the U.S. to study um, engineering, and then I got hired by a startup that sponsored my H-1B, uh, the year where Clinton had doubled them, and then sponsored my uh, green card, uh, basically because I had skills that were really needed for that startup to thrive. Um, so I feel really lucky that I had that journey. I love being here, and I think this is really important to bring different thinking and talent into the U.S. I hope that things get better. I have so too. I, I, and some level, being in the city of Boston makes me feel like, oh, it's not going to impact us. But I think it's impacting us in some small ways and maybe some large ways very soon. So hopefully we can figure this all out in a very short order and whatever through whatever means uh, we must used to figure that out um what's exciting you right now in the technology space so we talked about like you know jargon about blockchain and 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 understanding values but what's what's really got you curious about the future um so i can it is not really new it's a um actually it's not that new now it's probably two three years but it's still hasn't really got to full maturity um but i think if you look at the combination of some of these emerging technologies, I think there's a whole set of new business models that are going to emerge. And in, in one specific one that I'm really interested in is um, this rise of all this new data. You know, you can think about exhaust data if you're doing a process and you're collecting some data sets, you know, from industrial equipment or satellites and drones and then figuring out, you know, what is the way to get value from that data, how do you structure it, how do you combine it with different data sets. And then if you look at the rise of all these platform business models, so when you take combination of artificial intelligence, platform business model, rise of entirely new t- type of data sets, I think we, we, we're just having, we haven't seen everything that can come out. And, and I continue to think that there might be possibilities for entirely new data marketplaces and, and so on. So, uh, you know, it's an idea we were bouncing around back when I was at MIT and, you know, actually the guys I worked for as a research assistant, Eric Brynjolfsson and Andy McAfee just wrote a book called Machine Platform Crowd, which kind of talks about the confluence of those trends and what they could do to help try to tell business people about watch out, this is coming. And I think if you add this notion of this tremendous amount of untapped data that is not analyzed, that's sitting in companies and sitting in devices, and getting to a place where you can really get value from it. We're, we're just we're just the beginning of all of those things, right? So I'm pretty excited about what I'm seeing happen. I just think we have a long way to 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 find all the exciting applications for it. I'm really intrigued by the fact that you have not referred to technology in this entire conversation without immediately talking about the business case or the <laughs> business value. Every time I say, like, what's cool with technology or what's going on, yeah. you... I'm a complete- weird engineer. <laughs> I'm a weird engineer. But you're focused. I mean, it goes back so, to... So, I mean, to be fair, to um, I, th- you know, one of the... I work... The reason I went back to MIT is I worked for the smartest people in two startups. They were all brilliant, you know, like MIT PhDs. And, you know, somehow... 
we didn't become unicorns. And when I went back to MIT, that's what I studied. I tried to figure out what makes technology innovation be adopted. And I think you guys won't be surprised by that, but it was being completely customer focused and obsessed. And it sounds so obvious. It's actually really hard to do well, to your point earlier. And um, I kind of got, I drank my own Kool-Aid around that, which is, you know, technology will follow. We engineers can make things happen. It's either ready or not. It will get ready. You have, there's some risk, but actually the biggest risk is getting the problem statement right, really understanding what the business value is. That's where the hard part is, I think. I think so too. And I see it every day. Um, I really enjoyed this conversation. Me too. Thank you so much for being here. I look forward to maybe in two or three or four years you coming back and telling us how your experience has been. Um, hopefully lots of good good news and stories and talk about growth and success. Um, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. The Resonance Test Podcast is where we seek out people who are consistently able to go from inspiration and cool ideas to fully implementing them. Innovation in this form can be found in all sorts of fields, from health and tech to food and the workplace, and we love hearing how different people go about doing this repeatedly. Continuum is a global innovation design consultancy with studios in Boston, Milan, Seoul, and Shanghai. At Continuum, we're very deliberate about the term innovation. For us, it means turning ideas into stuff that's real. Because from our perspective, it's not really innovative until it exists. If you want to learn more about Continuum and the work we do, go to continuuminnovation.com. Thanks to Mona and Lee for their great conversation today. Cheers to Kip, our sound engineer extraordinaire, for getting this podcast recorded. Unending appreciation to Ken Gordon, our producer, for his masterminding behind the scenes. This has been The Resonance Test. I'm your host, Pete Chapin. And to our listeners, we thank you for your ears. Okay, so I had to have one last question, which was, I want to talk to you about your DJ career. So, <laughs> no, like, no. Lay, lay, a big it, word. lay it out here. <laughs> career is a big word. Um, I don't think it can count as a career. Okay. Um, so, let's see. Um, so, when I came to the U.S., um, I went to Tufts University, and Tufts uh, has this awesome freeform radio called WMFO, uh, where you can basically go in and go through, back then and go through all the records and CDs and so I my freshman year I started um, DJing at the radio doing the graveyard shift and one of the things that I noted was there was not a lot of women DJ back then and I thought well I could do this um, so I saved my spring break vacation money and got my first turntables and started to see if I could maybe get some gigs, which required me first having a car. Uh, and and uh, so I... Uh, Minor details. You know, you need the turntables and the car to go to your gigs. Um, so I did uh, a few years of DJing around Central Square, Davis Square, Boston, South End. Um, and at some point, being up till two in the morning got a little old, but um, I still love music a lot. Uh, I don't know I had to do the DJ thing without vinyl, so I'm probably a dinosaur now, uh, but uh, it was pretty fun. So what was the name of your radio show? I WFMU? changed, so I had different themes. The last one was called, I think, post-punk, because I mostly did post-punk, uh, which is a pretty narrow range, but um, very much into that. But I had, um, for a while I did roots reggae and focused on 1970s roots, so I tend to have this really 
specific type of music I get really into. There is a link between the roots reggae and the post punk. It's the Clash. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> uh, so that I ended on the post punk theme. Okay. And well, my favorite part, by the way, was to design all the flyers and putting them everywhere. I love doing that. Okay. Well, you may need that in the future as you rev up this team. You may need to broadcast what you're doing in all kinds of different ways. Uh, uh, thank you for letting us paint that broader picture of you and uh, for your time again. This was really fun. Thanks.